Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have bad, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. We're brought to you again by Ernest and Jim. Last Wednesday, of course, was a complete disaster up on Capitol Hill, but... uh, Today, it's major political fighting as the debate goes on over impeachment in the House of Representatives for President Trump. It would be the second impeachment. Uh, but Mitch McConnell, there are rumors that he would be open to voting to convict. However, as we uh, mentioned just a day or two ago, it looks like, according to the Senate calendar, things wouldn't even start over there until basically Biden's inauguration day. So it really would be all about uh, him not being able to run again, ultimately. Uh, But, Jim, what we're seeing here now, of course, is a deeply fractured Republican Party. And when Democrats are about to control everything in Washington— That's a really bad thing. And even looking forward to what would normally be a fairly favorable midterm election environment, usually, uh, that's not looking very promising when the party is deeply split. And the party's deeply split because you have those uh, like Liz Cheney, like uh, Mitch McConnell, it would appear, and other Republicans saying, look, uh, Trump is now beyond damaged goods. You've got to move on. We have to separate ourselves. Now's the time to do it. And then you have others, of course, pointing out that We don't know what percentage of that 74, 75 million uh, vote tally for Trump this year was uh, people who are more loyal to Trump than the party. But you're seeing it among members in Congress as well who are apoplectic about uh, the Republicans who are likely to vote for impeachment here based on their statements of the past 24 hours. Uh, So, Jim, assuming Trump, whether it's because he's back on social media, maybe, or just uh, very active still in politics, is going to try to put a thumb on the scale in 2022. Uh, This divide is not going to evaporate just because he's not president anymore. There are deep fissures, either depending on how you describe it, within the Republican Party or among people who are inclined, at least recently, to vote Republican. And I'm not sure right now how that gets resolved. And the only people who benefit, at least in the very short term, are Democrats. Yeah, uh, you know, I've been chewing this over, you know, day by day since last Wednesday, Greg. And, and you listen to people who are bigger supporters of Donald Trump than I am. Not a particularly high bar to clear. And you listen to them and they say things like, where was this outrage about vi- uh, uh, a protest turning violent in last summer? The George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests that turned into riots and arson and assaults and things like that. They talk a lot about hypocrisy. They talk a lot about social media cracking down, you know, Twitter kicking Trump off and things like that. And, and their arguments about hypocrisy are fair. Their assessment that a lot of Democratic lawmakers were eager to make excuse, a lot of folks in the media were eager to make excuse. That's all perfectly, you know, uh, perfectly valid. But the problem is, I don't think the hypocrisy of the other side gives you an excuse to be hypocritical on your side. And if, you know, protests turning into violence and turning into riots was wrong this summer for those who went to George Floyd protests, then it is wrong for the same to occur last Wednesday on Capitol Hill. Um, and I don't feel like there's been this full reckoning. The fact this there's a report that uh, Kevin McCarthy and Trump uh, had a phone call and Trump kept insisting that the violence was done by Antifa. So far, nothing law enforcement has found points to Antifa. It is a hard, deeply unpleasant truth 
for Republicans to recognize that the crowd that ransacked the Capitol, fought with police officers, killed a police officer, injured 50 some more, rampaged through the place, trashing the place and reportedly smeared feces on the walls, was a Republican or pro-Trump crowd. I, I, there's no evidence that these are agitators or deep cover, you know, Antifa. Inf- no, no, these these were Trump supporters. These were people who believed they were doing the right thing by trying to harm people. These were people who carried the Blue Lives Matter flag and then assaulted police officers. Right? These are lost souls in this crowd, and they are lost in part because of, I think you can point the, the finger at uh, at President Trump. I think you can point the finger at a lot of Republican lawmakers who either said and believed or said and did not believe, but felt the need to say anyway that the uh, presidential election results were uh, in dispute or unclear or that voter fraud could have occurred on a scale to not make Joe Biden the president of the United States. Republicans have to sit there and think, what do we stand for? What do we want? What is the outcome? And I don't think something generic like make America great again is going to be all that illuminating. I think we got to get specific. And the questions have to come back to policy. I can think back to when Ben Carson chose to run for president back in the 2016 cycle. And he said he wanted to become president because he wanted to change the culture. Well, the president undoubtedly has big influence over the culture. I think you can point to Trump. I think you can point to Obama. I think you can point to Bush. Like, there's no disputing that. But that's not really the job of the president. I don't, you know, it's nothing that comes in the oath. There's nothing about it in the constitution. You know, if you want to be president, read the constitution and look at what the president does. And our expectations of what our elected officials can do ought to be in that context. If you're really upset about what Hollywood is doing, you should go out and join Hollywood. You should go out there and try to take your argument there and attempt to influence the, pro- the process of creating arts and entertainment out there. If you're upset about big tech, you can go out to Silicon Valley. We need conservatives working in that industry to have, be, have voices at the table and maybe steer them away from some of their worst decisions. Conservatives cannot count on government to change the culture. If the, if the, the, and it's interesting, this, this been this fuel going back, maybe all the way back to Pat Buchanan in 1992 in his convention speech, where he declared that there is a cultural war going on in America. Well, at some point, that war stops being metaphorical. At some point, that turns into people trying to stab each other with flagpoles, with the American flag. Like, if that showed up in a Herblock cartoon, he was the heavy-handed, very left-of-center cartoonist for the Washington Post for years and years and years. And I don't know if anyone ever laughed at a Herblock cartoon. <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, a, a Republican beating a policeman with an American flag is like the sort of thing he would draw. And we saw it happen last Wednesday, right? That's where we are as a country. So we got to pull back from the brink and that requires the Republican party to function. Uh, even people who are left of center, not all, but some recognize the danger of uniparty states. California is not a better place because the Democratic party runs everything out there. You can look to Illinois. You can look to New Jersey, other than the short-lived term or the other than Chris Christie's time there. New York State. One-party states generally don't get run well. They generally get run into the ground because there's no competition. In New Jersey for a long time, the Democratic Party did not see the opposition party as the Republicans. They saw it as the FBI, considering the number of indictments they were dealing with. (laughs) Um, 
we need a functioning Republican Party. And the functioning Republican Party cannot work if it's a cult of personality. It's got to be about something bigger than one man. Even if, you know, I, I've laid out my numerous criticisms of Donald Trump, but I'd like to think that a good chunk of his supporters could hear what I just said and say, yeah, we're, we're not just about one guy and what he wants. If you love Donald Trump, great. I really don't agree with you, but fine. Um, but I wouldn't. I didn't like this. I don't think there was this much of a factor around George W. Bush, but maybe maybe in some circles there was. I wouldn't like Mitt Romneyism to be a thing. I don't really know if some people would argue you can't be a cult of personality unless you have more of a personality than Mitt Romney <laughs> has. But fine. We need to stand for ideas. And it's interesting. You know, Ronald Reagan has always been the icon for this party, and people say you can't go back to it. The problem with Ronald Reagan is that he was a whole bunch of things wrapped up in one. So if you want to say Ronald Reagan's appeal was because of conservative ideas, there are enough people who'd say yes, because Ronald Reagan was very clear. And not just that, you could also argue he was the great communicator, right? He'd spent his life uh, or a good portion of his adult life, not just being governor, but also doing those radio commentaries and those little things for for GE. Um, Ronald Reagan was about as masterful a communicator of of ideas about politics as you'll ever find. Um, I'd also note, Ronald Reagan used to be a Democrat before he became a Republican. So he understood the Democrats. He understood the people who voted for him. He understood the Democratic base in a way that I suspect a lot of Republicans uh, then and since have not. Right now, there are members of the National Guard sleeping in Capitol Hill underneath busts of George Washington and other founding fathers. They're wearing masks because we still have a pandemic going on and the process of vaccinating people is moving about as quickly as a kidney stone. We, we, we got to do better than this, America. We got to do better than, than, than this current state. And we've got to recognize that a civil war in the Republican Party isn't really going to do much good. But keep in mind, there are figures within the Republican Party who are much happier being king of a faction than merely having a, set, a seat at the table of a unified party. There are people who want the Republicans divided. And oh, by the way, the Democrats and the media, and some will say I'm being rep- repetitive there, uh, will want to see the Republican Party divided. So, you know, it's not quite unite or die. I mean, we're, we're, people are going to have their divisions, but one way or another, January 20th, the Trump presidency ends. And the question will be, what does the Republican Party stand for after that? And I think Donald Trump, the man, can't really be the centerpiece of that. His time on the stage has ended. He's heading into post-presidential life. I don't know if he wants to go create Trump TV or something, but the Biden era will begin. And the question will be not just what will Republicans oppose by the Biden administration. There'll be a lot of that. I think the question will be what do Republicans want to stand for as an alternative? And I think the answer has to move beyond the man who is Donald Trump. And I'll get off my soapbox, Greg. All right, Jim, let's put that on the uh, back burner for now. We'll have plenty of opportunity, sadly, to talk about that in the weeks and months going forward. Let's uh, bring in a little bit of good news today, and that is that you can get a lot of help with your student loan debt problem thanks to Ernest. Look, times are tough economically and otherwise, and worrying about your student loan payments does not make things any easier. And that's where refinancing with Ernest can really help you. Ernest offers low-rate student loan refinancing, and you can check your rate risk-free in just two minutes. With Ernest, you get radically flexible payments, and you can pick your loan terms. By refinancing, you can reduce your loan term, save money, or combine multiple loans into a simple monthly payment. And if you have questions, you can even talk to a real live human being at Ernest for help. 
Now, isn't it time you stopped feeling overwhelmed by your student debt? Well, now Ernest is giving Three Martini Lunch listeners a $100 bonus. Refinance your student loans at earnest.com slash martini. Terms and conditions do apply. Once again, you get a $100 cash bonus when you visit earnest.com slash martini to refinance your student loan. Visit earnest.com slash martini for more details. Terms and conditions apply. Earnest Student Loan Refinancing made by Earnest Operations, LLC, NMLS number 1204917, California Financing Law License number 6054788, 303 2nd Street, Suite 401, and San Francisco, California, 94107. Visit earnest.com slash licenses for a full list of licenses. How was that? Well done. <laughs> Not quite micro machines, but uh, it's getting there. We're getting there. Hopefully they'll be back and we can work on that even more. All right, Jim, let's talk about our second bad martini now. And this is courtesy of uh, NBC News. The acting assistant chief of the Capitol Police told Congress on Tuesday... He was not aware of any intelligence from the FBI in advance of January 6th, raising questions about an assertion by a top FBI official that threat information was shared with local police in advance of the Capitol riot. Stephen Dantuono, I think I'm saying that close to correctly, the head of the FBI's Washington, D.C. field office, said Tuesday the FBI had shared some information about threats of violence with local police before the January 6th storming of the Capitol, including a report by the FBI's field office in Norfolk, Virginia, that extreme were threatening, quote, a war. The report mentioned people sharing a map of tunnels at the Capitol complex and coordinating travel to Washington, according to the Washington Post, which first reported on the FBI document. But a readout of a closed-door briefing of Republican House members Tuesday, obtained by NBC News, quotes acting U.S. Capitol Police Assistant Chief Sean Gallagher is saying he never saw any such information. Quote, in response to a question, Assistant Chief Gallagher also informed members that he was not aware of intelligence from the FBI in advance of January 6th, the document says. Separately, Stephen Sund, who resigned as Capitol Police Chief, told the Washington Post on Tuesday that he never received, nor was made aware of the Norfolk Field Office intelligence, insisting he and others would have taken the warning seriously had it been shared. So, Jim, I guess it's worth pointing out that there's about, I don't know, a dozen or more police departments inside Washington, D.C., federal departments, Secret Service, uh, Park Police, Capitol Police, D.C. Metro Police for, for the city itself. And so who knows what local police they told it to. But if the FBI didn't tell the Capitol Police... How insane is this? We saw this with the, uh, the, the, the Boston Marathon bombing. We saw it with uh, some terrorist incidents in recent years. And it's happened again, apparently. It seems like every time a terrible terror attack or mass shooting or some other utterly horrific event occurs, questions come up in the aftermath. And we learn that someone somewhere had given some warning, generally to law enforcement. And as I pointed out, if you, God forbid, you know, you think someone you know is uh, likely to try to do something to harm people, don't tell school administrators, don't tell your company's HR office. The only people who can intervene and take away guns or, or you know, properly investigate it is law enforcement. But time after 9-11, a whole bunch of terror attacks, Greg, our most famous segment on this show is you and I laughing because otherwise we would be crying with the word that Disney security had done more about the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter than the FBI did. And that's our infamous Disney CTU segment. We laugh because oh, this is kind of outrageous. Like these people are designed to protect us. But as you rattle through all the different police agencies that have some jurisdiction and some portion of responsibility for protecting portions of Washington, D.C., you can start to understand 
how you know one agency might get informed and not the other, and they might not necessarily share. Remember the post 9-11 arguments about the stovepiping of information through organizations. And what's more, I, I have a sneaking suspicion. Remember how often in the era of the, let's say the height of the war on terror, we heard about terrorist chatter. Now, you know, some people I know like hate <laughs> that term because it kind of makes it sound like water cooler conversation somewhere at ISIS headquarters or something. And what they're usually is monitoring chat rooms that are run by Islamist groups and, and you know, these types of extremist groups. And these guys talk all the time and they're all braggarts and they're all going on about the big things they're going to do and all that kind of stuff. And some of this is because they genuinely intend to do it, but they haven't figured out how to do it. Some of it is because, no, this is a real deal. Some of this is just, you know, uh, you know, BS, you know, BSing each other. And I suspect some of the stuff might be to try, you know, the suspicion that someone's monitoring their communications and they want to freak people out. It may well even be probing to see what kind of comments cause a, sec- a change in security reaction uh, and others. I don't doubt that cops at every level have a very tough job. If Merrick Garland, who's stepping into the attorney general position, presuming Senate confirms him, I think pretty likely, um, this would be a terrific area for him to focus upon uh, because we've just had too many examples of this. And look, and maybe what it is is that if every field agency shared every piece of information that pointed to a potential threat or a potential attack, you know, maybe it would clog the the entire system. Maybe they're dealing with this sort of thing all the time. And this particular comment only looks significant in the aftermath now that we know that this one was real, hidden amongst God knows how much, you know, uh, nonsense chatter and, and, you know, chit chat there was. Uh, Nonetheless, it is infuriating that this keeps happening over and over and over again. And it's because we've done, we've had a nice long stretch, you know, since we had a serious terror attack. And it seemed like this was getting better. And clearly in this case, it did not. And you kind of have to wonder, you know, what, is it reasonable to have expected the U.S. Capitol Police to have expected something worse to happen that day? Because judging by what we saw in these videos, it looks like they were prepared for a busy day. They were not prepared at all for thousands of people trying to rush the doors all at once. As with so many other aspects of what happened a week ago, still more questions than answers, but hopefully we'll get more answers soon. And if uh, this turns out to be the case, not telling the Capitol Police might be one of the dumbest moves we've seen in a very long time. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. On every edition of the Sarah Carter podcast, I say we're taking back the story. And that's exactly what we have to do. Whether it's the Russia hoax, the relentless attacks on President Trump pretending Antifa doesn't exist, or covering up for the repressive Chinese government, the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. It's up to us to uncover the truth and share it with others. Please join me in taking back the story on the Sarah Carter podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini, and we need a a little levity here. There was a brief Twitter controversy yesterday that Chuck Norris was part of the insurrection against the U.S. government, the the, the storming of Capitol Hill, because uh, one guy who was part of the rally took a selfie with a guy who bore some resemblance to Chuck Norris. You can tell by the look on the other guy's face that he really thought it was Chuck Norris. He's got that kind of starstruck <laughs> look on his face that, that people sometimes get when, where the, the celebrity's just kind of like, oh, okay, I guess I'll take this picture. But uh, this guy looks like he's had, had a little bit of a rougher road than Chuck Norris. And Chuck Norris himself and his agent uh, have uh, clarified this now. His agent, Eric uh, Kritzer, saying, this is not Chuck Norris. 
and is a wannabe lookalike, although Chuck is much more handsome. Chuck remains on his range in Texas, where he has been with his family. Not to be outdone, Chuck Norris himself, who for some reason is not verified on Twitter, Jim. I don't know what Twitter's, uh, I mean, Twitter's in enough trouble already right now, but uh, they don't want a roundhouse kick for Chuck Norris. Twitter does not verify Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris verifies Twitter. (laughs) Very good point. So Chuck Norris says, I recently learned there was a Chuck Norris lookalike at the D.C. Capitol riots. It wasn't me and I wasn't there. There's no room for violence of any kind in our society. I am and always will be for law and order. Your friend Chuck Norris. And so, Jim, um, I know we don't want to make light of this. It was a very serious thing uh, that happened last week. But uh, I kind of wish Chuck Norris had been there because, you know, 50,000 roundhouse kicks and things might have been a little different. Craig, Craig, one roundhouse kick can stop 50,000 people. Let's be clear. He he wouldn't have to do it twice. Secondly, if impersonating an officer can be a criminal offense, I'm starting to think impersonating Chuck Norris should be a person, a, 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 a criminal offense as well. I say that mostly tongue in cheek, but here's the third thing. I, I, I'll make one moment of sympathy for the Chuck Norris in person. Actually give you two, two stories. I heard this one from Ollie North um, when he were in a green room on a cable show, probably was Fox News, you know, years and years ago. Uh, he was at some big conference and somebody comes up to him and says, oh, oh, I'm so glad I caught you. I just loved your book you wrote. I love everything you've done for the veterans. Um, thank you so much for everything you've done. And Ollie North says, oh, thank you. Because you know, you know, Ollie North hosts that show, War Stories, and is involved in a lot of veterans groups or something. And he says, could I, can I trouble you to autograph? I happen to have your book with me. Can I trouble you to autograph? Ollie North says, sure. The guy pulls out Tom Brokaw's book. <laughs> now, they kind of look like each other. They're both, you know, silver haired. And I suspect that as they age, and the guy might have worn glasses, maybe didn't have a great view of him or something. So think of the moral dilemma facing Ollie North at that moment where this guy has just been so nice and, and gushy. And it turns out that, no, it's not, you know, Tom. He, the whole time he thought he was talking to Tom Brokaw. Ollie North says he took the book, signed with best wishes, Tom Brokaw, and then went on his way. So uh, there's some poor guy out there who has an autographed book by Tom Brokaw that does not have actually autographed. But ironically, he has Ollie North's version of Tom Brokaw's autograph. <laughs> the second thing is last, you know, two years ago at the uh, Jets Redskins game, I was uh, lucky enough to get tickets, brought my sons, brought my brother, brought my father. And my dad is getting up there in years. And he has his own uh, uh, you know, personalized jersey with his last name, the hard to spell Garrity and number 60 on the back. And as we're leaving the game, and yes, the Jets won the game. It's not, not, like, not like you get to say that very often. A woman comes up to him and says, oh, my God, it's you. I remember you were part of the Super Bowl team, <laughs> meaning the Jets victory over the, the, the Colts back in 1969. Now, my dad, the proper thing to do in this situation is to say, no, ma'am, I was not on the Jets Super Bowl team. I am not a retired player. Uh, my dad, with the sense of mischief that he has, basically plays along. And I think she left the conversation believing that he was the long snapper on the New York Jets Super Bowl victory team <laughs> of, of Super Bowl three. Um, that was not the case, ma'am. I've, it's always kind of nagged at me. On the other hand, when somebody mistakes you for a celebrity or somebody you're not, I can understand the temptation to play along and say, yes, yes. Like the guy used to say in those Bud Light commercials, yes, I am. <laughs> That's fantastic. Hey, Jim, maybe it's just maybe it's just kept it from you. I didn't want you to feel the burden of that legacy. 
But, no, he'd probably get dragged back into service. Yeah, well, maybe so. But, you know, with the jersey number of 60, that's an offensive lineman number. You know, that's uh, perfect. Long snapper. Most people don't remember who that is. Uh, you can probably get away with that. Yeah. I remember a story from Michael Deaver, uh, who, of course, was very close with Ronald Reagan. This was before Reagan became president. He was walking down the street, and somebody came up to him and said, I know you. You're Ray Milland, who was in uh, Dial M for Murder and a few other movies over the years. And and uh, can I have your autograph? And he signs it, Ray Milland, just like Ali North did. And Mike Deaver says, why did you sign Ray Milland? He's like, I know who I am. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the right answer. There you go. Oh, man. But anyway, it's not just Chuck Norris who's ha- had some issues in the last 24 hours. Uh, this is courtesy of page six of the New York Post, Jim. He'd rather live free. Bruce Willis was asked to leave a Los Angeles Rite Aid on Monday after he refused to wear a mask. The spy for page six says people inside the store became upset that Willis, 65, wasn't wearing a mask, despite having a bandana tied around his neck, which he could have easily pulled up. We're told the diehard star who was photographed at the store without a mask on walked away without making his purchase. He has now said it was a lapse of judgment. And since he did have the man, the bandana, I'm not sure why he didn't, uh, Jim, but... Uh, I don't know if he was close to Century City. I don't know if there were Twinkies he was getting for Officer Powell, but uh, uh, nobody tells John McClane, I guess, what to do. Well, I I just wish the woman had said, sir, attention, whoever you are, this lane is reserved for people wearing masks only. And he had responded, no bleeping bleep, lady. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? (laughs) Come on, John McClane, wear a mask. You know, we we all know you're smirking under it anyway. (laughs) Ah, good to end on a laugh. Jim, have a good day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about getting some help for that student loan debt at earnest.com slash martini. Also, subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'd love your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day and join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.